Grace Community Church, especially those of you who are here for the first time. I see some of you for the first time. That doesn't mean that this is your first time here. You could have been here three or four weeks and I just missed you or, um, well, I'm of a certain age with the memory thing, you know, and so you know how it goes. Uh, Keisha mentioned um, the baptism on October 20th and the work day the day before. Let me, I just want to mention one more thing. And, she, and again, she may have mentioned this, but the memory thing again. Well, and that is the Grace Connection class. We're going to be starting a, a new class for those of you who are uh, wanting to learn more about Grace. It is required for membership if you plan to join. And even if you don't, if you're not sure about that, you just want to learn more about Grace Community Church, come to the Grace Connection class and then you can make a more informed decision about that. So we'll begin that on October 20th at 9 a.m. in the back. So come in and we'll welcome you there, but move you towards the back for that particular class. I ask a question that is, uh, it's really kind of a ridiculous question. Have you ever been misunderstood? Um. <clears throat> Of course, the answer is yes. A, a, a better question would be, don't you hate it when people misunderstand you? Uh, sometimes people want to misunderstand you, right? But other times, you say something that you mean to be a compliment, and your wife, uh, um, excuse me, and someone, it just takes it all wrong, you know. They, you, you, they, they misunderstand what you're saying entirely. And... <clears throat> And so then you're having to explain yourself. Now, sometimes the consequences for being misunderstood can be deadly. You've you've heard of friendly fire, I'm sure, where soldiers are killed by people in their own army because of mistaken identity or a misunderstanding. Um, When it comes to our personal relationships or interpersonal relationships, uh, we don't want other people to be frustrated or upset with us because they misunderstand our motives or our intentions. Although, look, some of us, let's just face it, some of us care more about whether people understand us or, or not. Some are blessed with this, you know, kind of like, well, hey, that's not what I meant. I'm sorry if you took it that way. That's... But that's not what I meant. And and they just go on with life. You know, others go into deep depression for three or four days, you know, because somebody misunderstood what they were saying. Well, imagine this. Jesus was misunderstood pretty much every day of his three to three and a half year ministry by pretty much everybody. Nobody fully understood Jesus. His disciples often couldn't understand why the Messiah, whom they were convinced that Jesus was, would say some of the things that he would say. He would, especially when he would talk about dying, they would just go into this quiet kind of a confused state. Or they would go into the we need to talk him off the ledge kind of state, you know, and they'd say, Jesus, don't talk about dying. You're the Messiah. You're going to overthrow Roman oppression. You've got it wrong. Jesus was sometimes just exasperated with his disciples' preconceived notion of his purpose 
for coming to earth. But the disciples' misunderstanding was nothing like the religious leaders' misunderstanding. Actually, both the religious and the political leaders misunderstood Jesus altogether. The disciples were confused, but the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, the Herodians were rather clear on what Jesus was saying. But they didn't like it. And they opposed him so passionately that they wanted to kill him. Jesus was not just frustrated with their intentional misunderstandings of his mission. He was angry with them. He was angry because they were trying to turn people from him. Now, I'm going to explain that a little bit further in a little bit. Uh, we're going to spend the next two weeks sorting through the differences between Jesus and the, and the leaders, the, the religious and, and political leaders of the Jewish nation. Uh, although that's going to come up a whole lot more than just this week and next week. But that's going to be some of our, our focus in these next two weeks. The differences between Jesus and the leaders came down to the differences between law and gospel. Uh, between religion and relationship. To works and grace. Our text today is Mark chapter 2 verse 23 through 3. 6. Both of these instances deal with Jesus' uh, actions on the Sabbath being misunderstood and criticized by the religious and political leaders of the day. As is our custom, I'll ask you to stand if you would as we read Mark chapter 2 verses tw- verse 23 through Chapter 3, verse 6. One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? By the the way, when when you see it worth saying, that's a clue that this verb is in the present tense, and and the Pharisees were constantly asking Jesus. They were badgering him about this. Why are your Pharisees doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger grieved at the hardness of heart, at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out, and immediately 
held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Our Father, uh, there have been times in our lives when we have completely and utterly misunderstood who you are, how you relate to us, what our responsibility is in the way of responding to your call. Lord, uh, Jesus in these two instances was criticized for his treatment of the Sabbath and yet all those who were with him misunderstood not only the law of the Sabbath, but they misunderstood the Lord of the Sabbath. We pray that as our hearts today are drawn to you, that we would not think simply about who's right and what's what in these circumstances, but that, Lord, that we would find the truth of the Sabbath that you've given as a great blessing to us. Speak to our hearts and cause us to respond to you on this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and be seated. Um, why, why, did, why do you think the Jewish leaders hated Jesus so much? He goes without saying that he was challenging their power base. And that they knew that if the people began to follow Jesus, sooner or later, they were going to come against the, the leaders. Uh, and, and, and groups as diverse as these followers of Herod and the conservative, religiously conservative, conservative Pharisees banded together and they said, you know, we've got to kill this man. It was the enemy, enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of a thing. And there's going to be a lot more collaboration against Jesus by these different groups that we're going to see over and over in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, why, why is it that they were so intent on killing Jesus? Well, in addition to the fact that they were challenging his power base, um, it would be simplistic to say that they were just jealous of Jesus and they were worried about people following them. There's a truth to such a statement, but if you leave it there, you're missing some of the deeper meaning. For all the unsettledness that Jesus brought to a region in which the leaders were desperately trying to maintain stability, there were two primary reasons that they wanted Jesus dead. Not just silent. They didn't want to just silence him. They wanted him dead. One we saw last week, the second we're seeing today. First, the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead because of who he claimed to be. He claimed to be God. One of the primary things that separated the Jews from all other peoples of the day, or the great majority of other peoples of the day, was the number one. They worshipped one God. This God, you couldn't make an image of this God because you couldn't see Him. They understood that their God was spirit. And for a man to say, who was born, and you could trace his lineage, you could, well, trace his birth anyway, you could confirm that this man was born. And he's a poor carpenter, not at all like the rabbis, like the religious leaders of the day. 
For this man to say he was God was blasphemy. And under Jewish law, blasphemers were worthy of death. It was, in fact, the crime for which the Jewish leaders convicted Jesus, although when they sent him to Pilate, they used a little bit more of a political path or a political tactic. Speaking of politics, the second reason that the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus dead had, to, had as much to do with politics as it did with religion. Jesus' refusal to follow the national laws about Sabbath felt like a threat to the very identity of the Jewish nation. Now that may seem like a stretch to you, but, but understand this. The Jews had a special place in the Roman Empire. You remember later when the leaders are talking, the high priest Caiaphas says, you don't understand anything. It's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to be taken away. They felt their place in the Roman Empire even threatened by Jesus' desecration in their eyes of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was one of the things that people said, you know, you know those Jews, don't mess with them on Saturday. They are ridiculously religious. They were so fanatical about their ways of worship that they were allowed to worship as they, were, as they desired. In fact, they were allowed to not burn incense to Caesar, which was a big deal. Uh, in, in the two instances where Jesus went against the authorities in his Sabbath day practices. He, wa- he wasn't going against Moses' law, the law of Moses, or God's law as written in those first five books of Scripture. But he was stepping outside the fence that the Jews had put around the Sabbath. And we like to do that, don't we? We like to put fences around areas of, uh, 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 that are already law so that you can be careful not... Some people... Get as close to the edge of the law as they can. Others want to get as far away from the edge as they can. And we live our lives in that way. The Jews had identified 39 specific activities that they regarded as violations of the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Well now, maybe they didn't regard them initially as direct violations of the law, but they started off saying, you know, if you're going to keep the Sabbath, you better only, you can only go so far. And, and, and God is against working on the Sabbath, and you know, if you pick up something that's too heavy, then that's going to be a violation. So let's, let's put a weight limit on what you can pick up. Sooner or later, these 39 suggestions became law. What was intended as protection against breaking the law had become a legalistic code that ultimately became an identifying marker of the nation. But instead of moving people toward God, what did these regulations have the effect of doing? Moving people away from God. This was in spite of the fact That on the outside, those who kept these strict Sabbath regulations appeared to be very religious. Well, in the first instance instance of our text, Jesus' disciples were accused of gleaning 
when they had picked grain on the Sabbath, which was a violation of one of those 39 regulations that had been added to the law. Jesus pointed the, old, the, the, the leaders to the Old Testament where King David and his men had done something quite similar. And he made the point that the Sabbath was intended to bless man, not to punish man. And he said, in essence, you misunderstand the Sabbath because you misunderstand me. In fact, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Now, who do you have to be to claim to be Lord of the Sabbath? You have to be God. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't record any direct pronunciations of Jesus' claim to divinity in the same way that John does. John says in John 10, 31, I and the Father are one. John 14, 8, somewhere along there, maybe it's 4, somewhere just before, just after uh, verse 6, he's talking to Philip. Philip says, just show us the Father. I believe it right after verse 6. Show us the Father and we'll be happy. And Jesus said, Philip, have you been with me all this time and you don't get the fact that if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. Now, the synoptics don't come right out the way that John does and, and, and record those statements of Jesus. I am is big enough. I am Lord of the Sabbath. But over and over, the synoptics record statements of Jesus that cannot be taken any other way. Like, for instance, last week, when he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Who can forgive sins? Only God. And he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. You may not think about that in the same way that the Pharisees thought about it when Jesus said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who initiated the Sabbath, instituted it, and I can do anything I want to with the Sabbath. But he wasn't breaking the law. He was breaking their conception or their understanding of the law, which was much beyond what God had said. In the second Sabbath account in our text, Jesus was watched very carefully to see whether he would heal a man on the Sabbath. Now, just think about the irony that hangs in the air this day in the Sabbath. What's he going to do? I mean, here's a man with a paralyzed hand. Everybody knows it. Probably everybody knows this man, and he's got a hand that is, is withered, it's paralyzed, he can't move it. And they know that Jesus can heal him. I mean, they understand that he can do it. And they say, let's see what it is. Don't you think they might have asked themselves, you know, this is amazing. Is it possible that this man comes from God? He can do miracles like nobody we've ever seen. And every time in the Old Testament when there's a cluster of miracles, it's because it is God is affirming a message that He is giving. So now, and it's been many years since there have been a cluster, there has been a cluster of miracles, and here's a cluster of miracles by Jesus. But they never stop and think, could this man be from God. 
And you know what? That made Jesus mad. In fact, the Greek indicates that it made him furious. A few weeks ago, he, he told people to shut up in our text. And I got in trouble, you know, because I said that with some of the kids in here. Not really. I didn't really. But that is, you know, the S word in a lot of uh, people's minds. Shut up. But Jesus said it. And here he is furious with these men who were waiting to see what he would do. I mean, here was a man with a paralyzed hand, which might not seem to rise quite to the level of some of the others until you have a paralyzed hand. Can you imagine having extremely limited use of this hand? And there are these people who care way more about the rules than they do about this man's welfare. People uh, who go up to TVR talk about the servant spirit of the staff that are there. And, and, and Greg Oakley, who is the director, is always gracious to say, you know, all of this was going on in Brad's day. But the, but the fact of the matter is, all of this was going on in the day of the founders of Team Valley Ranch, Bob and Pat Anderson. And Bob used to say so many things that, that are said to this day. And one of the things that he, that he said is that people are more important than rules. Now look, TVR, Team Valley back in that day was a pretty conservative camp. So it's not like kids were running wild and doing all kinds of crazy things. It was, there were a lot of rules, but he, he, he always made the point, people are more important than rules. It's almost a bit of a reluctance to say that, as you can imagine, because we can take that too far. And we can constantly justify doing just about anything on the basis of the better good. Well, that's the rule, but I think it's more important that we do this. I mean, we've got policies and rules here at Grace Community Church, and we've got them for a reason. They're there to protect us and to protect you and to protect your children. We have some pretty strict rules back there. That's why we can't ask you the first week that you come in, hey, would you work in the children's ministry? But if you've been here a while, we want you to, we are interested in you working in the children's ministry. You got a choice. Pay $5,000 or work in the children's ministry. You know, after you've been here six months, that's the deal. That's the deal. But, look, you don't want us to loosen those rules. But rules, that's a tricky thing, isn't it? It quickly gets out of hand. Rule making, rule breaking and rule making both get out of hand. Very quickly. In the case of our text, the Pharisees were out to destroy Jesus. And they would use any pretense available to accuse him. So, I I, I wanted to explain why it is the Jews wanted to kill him. And, and, And in fact, as we look at... These two reasons, the fact that he claimed to be God and and that he's a Sabbath breaker, you'll see this come up over and over, and it'll help the rest of the the, the teaching make sense. But I don't want us to miss, what what is it that we are supposed to understand about the Sabbath that the Pharisees missed? I mean, obviously, we're meeting on Sunday, not Saturday. 
So have we taken that too far? Well, well no. We'll talk about that in, in just a little bit. But as we move toward the Lord's table this morning, I want us to think about three Sabbath principles that we would do well to embrace. Not only are we not keeping those 39 regulations of the Sabbath, we're not even keeping the fourth commandment, the Sabbath as in the seventh day of the week, to keep it holy. Obviously, we think that it's a new day since Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we meet on the first day of the week. But what? But these principles are still very much to be understood and embraced. The first one is this. Rest in Jesus, not your good works. The Sabbath was first placed at the end of the creation week. God rested from his creative works, pronouncing all of his creation as good. And it was a pattern that he mercifully established for mankind. I mean, God wasn't tired when he finished his creation. And in fact, the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, tells us that he works. And, and Jesus said, my father continues to work in John 5. He works to this day. He's never stopped working, but he did stop creating. But unlike God, our bodies wear out. They need rest and replenishment. But there's a much deeper truth to the Sabbath than just rest. Since the fall, it is absolutely impossible for us to please God on the basis of our works or through religion. Religion is always goading us. It's always scolding us, saying you've got to do better if you want to get to God. You've got to work at it. You've got to... You, you're, you're trying to tell me that a person just has to believe in Jesus and then he goes to heaven, you can live anyway. No, that's not what we're telling you. But that's the idea that people get. If you want to be in heaven, you've got to earn the right to be there. But the Lord tells us in his word that we can never be good enough. Our only hope, and it's been the only hope all the way through, is to believe the promise that God will save us if we look to him. The book of Hebrews tells us that it was never possible to obtain salvation through the law. Even the sacrificial system, the blood of, of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Every year they have to keep coming back and offer sacrifices for their sin. But Hebrews tells us that rather salvation is found only in Jesus. And truly all of scripture pretty much tells us that salvation is by God's grace. But Hebrews methodically explains why it couldn't be earned through the keeping of the law. The sacrifices only afforded temporary forgiveness. They had to keep coming back. We needed something permanent. What's our hope? It's Jesus. Our only hope is to rest in Jesus. Salvation, in fact, is compared to Sabbath rest in the book of Hebrews. You're going to look at that a little bit in home group this week. If you are truly trying to earn God's 
favor by your good works. I'm going to guess that you're tired. Weary. Weary, in fact. If you really hope that you can be good enough for God to accept you when you get to heaven. I mean, it just seems like it'll never be enough. It never will. Scripture makes that very clear. And in fact, deep down, you know it. But over and over, God offers us rest in Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 is just one of many places where this truth is articulated. When Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If you and I were sitting down for just a one-on-one chat, and I were to ask you, are you hoping that you can be good enough to get to heaven? Are you resting entirely in Jesus? How would you respond to that? Look, that one-on-one chat with me is nothing. One day you're going to stand before God. And you're going to have to have an answer for that question. Why? As it says in one evangelism ministry. Why should God allow you into heaven? What is your answer for that? Would you bow your heads for just a moment? We're not, we're not done. Two-thirds of the way through. But I, I want to just stop for a moment. You can settle this right now. Resting in Jesus is not simply an intellectual ascent. Though that's clearly a part of it. You have to understand with your mind. But then you have to believe with your whole being. If you have not rested in Jesus, if you say, you know, I've been thinking about this or for years I've been counting on the fact that, you know, I, 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 I know the, or read the Bible, I'm a member of a church, I've been baptized, whatever it is you are counting on, but you've never rested in Jesus, would you pray something like this in your heart? Lord, I've been trying to establish my good standing before you based on laws and rules but I know, I know that it will never be enough I confess to you that I am a sinner and ask for you to please forgive me for my sin and for trusting in myself rather than in Jesus I believe Your word that tells me that Jesus died in my place. Taking the punishment that I deserve. And right now. Right now I place my trust in Jesus. And I rest in him according to your promise. Oh Lord let me live for you even as I rest in Jesus. Amen. Amen. The second Sabbath principle. And by the way, I'm I'm moving on, but if, if you just prayed that, 
something like that, and some of you have been thinking about this for a while, then this is not just a time to move on kind of a moment. I understand that. Would you please tell me, tell your home group leader, tell the person who first invited you to grace about what the Lord did in your heart this morning. He has called you and you have responded. Indeed, you have prayed that. And you have found Sabbath rest in Jesus. Well, the second Sabbath principle is that God's purpose in the Sabbath is to turn your heart toward Him. In the Old Testament, God's covenant people set aside a day for Him according to His command. On Saturday, and, and they worshipped the Lord. They were reminded of their Creator and covenant God. In these New Testament days, we worship God on the first day of the week in celebration of Jesus' resurrection. You know, there are a lot of things are not, that are not as clear to us in the New Testament as we would like. And this was a, a bit of a debate in the early church. They met whenever they could. Maybe they didn't even meet once a week because of the threat of persecution, uh, schedules. Some of them were slaves. It's not like you could just, you had the freedom to meet as often as we do today and, and, and as an established way as we do today. But the, but the New Testament believers came to understand that God would have them to meet on the day, the first day of the week, in celebration of Jesus' resurrection. I mean, we are living resurrected lives because the, the Savior was resurrected and since it was the first day, that's the day we're going to meet. But but the Sabbath principle is still in play. Even though we meet on a different day, the first day of the week, still God has designed a day where we focus much more on Him as a, as a body than on other days of the week. It's a day of rest for, from our labors, but it's designed to be much more than just rest. We should allow ourselves... To be drawn back to our creator and redeemer. Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man. Not the other way around. And that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. God's grace and mercy abound in the Sabbath. And rather than simply taking a day off from our labor. We should ask him to renew our hearts in this covenant relationship that we have with him. Not re-up on the covenant relationship, but just to renew our hearts in that beautiful connection that we have with him. So let me ask you, do you have anything that comes close to approximating a Sabbath in your life? I mean, technology has made life so easy that we're able to, you know, take a lot more time off, right? Look, in, in, in this day where any job is a good job, and they expect more and more from you, it's hard to find time to rest, isn't it? Just to rest. But to intentionally rest in Jesus, that's more difficult still. But let me ask you this, is that kind of intentional rest something that we can afford to neglect? What happens when we do? We pay the price. What happens 
when your body doesn't get the rest that it needs. Bad news, isn't it? Uh, And you will say things and do things and think things that you wouldn't ordinarily think and say and do if you had proper rest. Well, if we're not resting and turning our hearts toward the Lord, we're going to be missing something greatly. The entire world benefits from the idea of periodic rest from labor, but but Sabbath rest is meant to be so much more. And though reflection on the Lord and His Word and our lives always lead us to confession and repentance, that's not the purpose of Sabbath. Sabbath is intended to bring joy into our lives. When we turn we're, we're turned inward when we're, when we're not focusing on God. We can only have temporary happiness and peace. But when we're turned to our creator and redeemer, we're going to experience, begin to experience the joy and the hope of eternity. Our hearts were made for eternity. That's why the gospel is in every culture in some way. You know, I used to really not like these uh, books Finding the gospel in the Lord of the Rings. Finding the gospel in this and finding the gospel in that. And I'm still not crazy about them. I think finding the gospel in Harry Potter is really a stretch. But, you know, you can find that. Truth of the matter is, the seeds of the gospel are everywhere. And God planted eternity in all of our hearts according to Acts 17. And when we find those Seeds of the gospel in people's hearts and start to water them and explain them. Explain what this process is all about. And people can make connections. And that doesn't mean that people are saved if they don't know Jesus. It's one of the difficult truths of scripture that if you don't know Christ, you can't know God. But it does mean that it's already there. The gospel is already there in some form. And when we tap into that and show people how Jesus meets the deepest needs of our heart. Then that's attractive. For some, others still want it to be about them and refuse the gospel. When we... Though, begin to accept the joy and the hope that is in the gospel. We start thinking about eternity and that makes the here and now far better. And it prepares us for this last application we'll make today for the Sabbath. Sabbath rest prepares our hearts to do good to others. When we are weary from labor, there is nothing quite like rest, is there? When you've been up for a long time or when you've worked exceptionally hard and you lie down in bed and you go to sleep, that is is some of the best sleep that you've had in a long, long time. And your mind, body, and spirit are all replenished with rest. But we are not designed to stay in a state of rest. In the same way that we're not designed to work all the time without rest, we are not designed to stay in that state of rest. If this life is going to be meaningful at all, it's going to have to be filled with purposeful work. It must be found in Jesus and found in Him living through us, accomplishing His will in our part of the world, our part of the universe at this 
point in history. Good works will never make us acceptable to God, but we were created for good works, or good works were created for us to do. And our rest in Christ prepares us for kingdom work. Here's how Tim Keller summarizes all that we've been thinking about this morning. Most people in the world believe that if there is a God, you relate to Him by being good. Most religions are based on that principle, though there are a million different variations on it. Some religions are what you might call nationalistic. You connect to God, they say, by coming into our people group and taking on the markers of society membership. Other religions are spiritualistic. You reach God by working your way through certain transformations of consciousness. Yet other religions are legalistic. There's a code of conduct, and if you follow it, God will look upon you with favor. This is probably the most prominent in our nation. But they all have the same logic. If I perform, if I obey, I'm accepted. The gospel of Jesus is not only different from that, but diametrically opposed to it. I'm fully accepted in Jesus Christ. And therefore I obey. Therefore I serve. Therefore I work. And when we allow Jesus to be the Sabbath rest that he is for our souls. We're ready to go to work. Amen. It's because of this truth. That we come to this table today. We come to remember our Lord's death to redeem us from sin. So that we might be made clean. Jesus became sin for us. Even though he knew no sin. There was no sin in him. That we might become in him the righteousness of God. He gave his body and blood so that we might live eternally with him. And the bread that we eat and the juice that we drink or a participation or a fellowship in the body and the blood of Christ as we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, we're going to conduct our communion today the same way that we did last time. And you might get the sense that we're moving to do this on a more consistent basis and it's true. We're going to come forward and receive the elements. But because this is somewhat new, I'm going to take just a little bit of time to explain it again uh, last week, just a, I mean last month, just a few little hitches. But I, I want to explain this. But I, I want you to think about this. One of the benefits of coming forward, oh, I, Allison and I, actually Allison has been doing this for a long time in her church uh, in Raleigh. But I, every church that I went to, we came forward to receive communion. And I had a sense of community in that setting that, it's just not always present when you're sitting in your seat and the, and the elements are, are passed. Now, certainly communion can be meaningful or not meaningful no matter how you do it as long as it's, it's according to, not outside the bounds of what Scripture allows. But I want you this morning as you're coming forward to sense the community that you have because communion is meant not only to bring us closer to Christ and, and, and to 
cause us to commune with Him, but to commune with His body. It's designed for us to come together as we worship Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. In just a few moments, I'm going to pray, going to set the table, so to speak, read the Scripture to talk about whether or not, uh, or excuse me, to talk about the, the, the meaning of this meal that we are about to share. Um, and by the way, let me do this right now. As we say, let me fence the table a little bit. This meal is designed for followers of Jesus Christ. If you are not a follower of Christ and you don't want to sit where you are, I fully understand that. And, and you want to be honest. This experience needs to be genuine. Scripture is quite clear that it's important that we know our relationship with the Lord before we partake of this meal. <laughs> and if you just don't want to, you know, if you don't want to sit there, just come forward. And, and, and there may be other reasons. If you're a believer, there may be a reason that you want to not partake this morning. If there's something that you're dealing with and you just need to be clear in your heart before you do this, although... The beauty of this meal is it's designed to remind us of God's forgiveness through the blood of Christ, through Jesus. Um, But you can just come forward, not partake, and then go back. So here's what we're going to do. After I read the scripture and I pray, then the workers, the servers, I mean, the elders, deacons who are serving, and the worship team are going to come forward and they're going to partake right up front and then... They'll go to their post. And at that time, two ushers will uh, dismiss you by rows. And we want to come down two rows. The slanted aisles is the best way that I can know it. This aisle and that aisle. The middle and the outside aisles are going to be used for going back. So you'll come down like this or you'll come down like this. Okay? Partake. You can receive the elements and take them back to your seats or you can partake right where you are. Either way that is most comfortable to you, you can do. So again, I don't, <clears throat> I, I want to do this as clearly as I can and then it will become quite uh, uh, understood, easily understood and practiced for us in the future. This aisle and this aisle coming down. There will be a station in front of your particular section. Go to that station And then go back up the middle or go back the outside aisles. Um, Mark chapter 14. Since we're in the gospel of Mark, I want to read this account. And and as we know, whenever Mark gives an account, it's it's a fairly brief account. He actually talks a, 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 a good little bit coming up to the time of this institution of this meal. In verse 22 it says, And as they were eating, <clears throat> he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks. He gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them. This is my blood. Of the covenant. Which is poured out. For many. 
The Lord gave his body to be beaten to a pulp to be broken. Gave his blood to be spilled. And the Lord in heaven, God the Father, turned his back on the Son. Broke fellowship with him. It's the equivalent Jesus experienced on the cross. The equivalent of an eternity in hell. For us, can you imagine that? This is my body. Eat. This is the blood of my covenant, or of the covenant which is poured out for many. Father, your plan is marvelous. And while our hearts are broken for our sin, We rejoice in the forgiveness that is ours because of Jesus when we trust in Him. So, Lord, today we eat believing that Jesus died for us. Today we partake of the fruit of the vine believing that Jesus' blood represented your covenant with us, with your people. And we rejoice in the forgiveness that we have. And we anticipate, Jesus, your return to take your rightful place, not only at the head of the church, but over the entire world. You are our king. And we give thanks For the bread which represents your body and the, and the juice which represents your blood. And we eat in faith according to the promise of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you will stand with me for the benediction. In the book of Jude, we find these words. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go in peace. <laughs>